It's the moment you've all been waiting for. Scott's book, the title, has now just come out. The title is Golf Decoded, Unraveling the Game's Greatest Secrets. If you guys want to get a head start on this book, go ahead and hop on over to his Instagram at shassigolf, two S's and two E's, and go ahead and pre-order the book on GoFundMe. It's $14.99, and it'll be the best $14.99 you guys have ever spent. It comes with a lot of free extras, uh, a lot of content throughout the book that you guys will be able to scan a QR in the book and go ahead and uh, check out the videos that are linked to those QR codes. So it's more than just a book, it's a golf cheat code. So hop on over, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Peace. There's no rules! Shoot a lower score! There's one rule! Hello and welcome back to the back porch of Franklin Bridge. Wow, we're loud tonight. We are. That's great. That's right. All right, Scott. You gonna let me? You gonna let me kick it off? So loud, it's not even usable. Close that door. All right. So, um, with us tonight, um, we have uh, a gentleman who is the a professor of mathematics at University of Texas, uh, Austin. Correct? Did I get that right? Um, and uh, he's also co-author. Go ahead. I'm going to give some math courses to everybody there. Do you, you don't mind if I give some props? No, yeah, we're going to, can we do like discrete math or linear algebra? That would be even better. Okay, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah, so um, we have with us Michael Starbird, um, and he is co-author of uh, one of my favorite books called The Five Elements of Effective Thinking. Uh, I actually think it's one of the uh, absolute must-haves in your collection if you're a reader. Um, I've read it more than once. You, you say to read it three times. I haven't read it three times yet. I'm, I'm through it twice. Uh, but it was actually, um, I can thank my parents for this one, the fact that I was born there here tonight. Um, my dad's voice teacher, family friend, and kind of mentor of mine, he was a voice teacher out of Evansville, Indiana. Um, he suggested, he said, Scott, you need to pick up this book. The Five Elements of Effective Thinking. Um, and if I don't get this book, I don't write my first book on course strategy. Um, and I don't, I certainly don't fall into book two that I'm working on right now, uh, which is uh, predictive stats on the PGA Tour and how to apply that to your game. So, um, right. Michael, thank you for this book. Um, and thanks to Mr. Hoover. He, he passed away a couple years ago um, in his 80s. So, uh, if it's not for all that, we're not here tonight. So, Michael, welcome. If you'll share with everybody a little bit more about where you are, how you got to where you are, and um, how the book, The Five Elements of Effective Thinking, came to be. Well, well thank you. Thank you so much. It's such an honor that you have had such an impact on you. But, by the way, there's a feedback. Oh. Uh, Hang on, Jack's, Jack's working on that. Jack's working on that a little bit. Yeah, a little bit of Any better? Well, let, let's try that. That's uh, it's a little bit better. Oh, okay. Have your pop filter on. It's 
possible that you may have to you may have to mute yourself while I'm speaking and then unmute to ask questions. Gotcha. Let's see. I'm gonna mute me. There you go. Okay, that I think that'll get rid of the of the feedback loop. We'll see. There we go. Okay, the, the problem with it, of course, is that you can't uh, you can't talk unless you quit quit uh, <laughs> unmute yourself. But feel free to unmute yourself at any time. And I certainly hope that your everyone in your audience feels free to ask questions as they arise. But let me just say a, a few words about. It's had an impact on you in such a good way. That's that's great. I love it. Uh, I'm a, as you pointed out, I'm a teacher of mathematics. So you wonder why in the world did I write a book about thinking? And the reason was that that years ago, a friend of mine asked me to teach a course for liberal arts students. And when I, after failing to teach a good course for several times, it was a sort of a disaster. The first three times I tried it. That I finally dawned on me that the goal of the course could not be teaching mathematics. The goal of because these were students who never really used any significant mathematics in their lives, but everybody thinks. So the goal of the class became to use the mathematics as a vehicle for teaching people how to think better, to be more creative, to be better artists or writers or politicians or business people or just citizens of the world. So my goal became, what could I do to give people experiences that would be of actual value to them every day of their lives, not just on the occasions when they use a little bit of math. And so, so by thinking that way, seeing what is the real question with doing mathematics, and for, I mean, with this course, the real question was getting people to be able to think better for what they're actually going to do, not become better mathematicians. And that changed the whole strategy, and it made us think about, about the idea of, well, can you actually teach people to be better thinkers than they are, to be better, you know, better at everything they do, including golf? Can we, can we say things that would actually lead a person to become better at, at, at golf? I'm not a golfer myself, but I play tennis. I play tennis and racket sports. In fact, I'm the super rackets champion of the University of Texas from 1989, <laughs> one of my greatest accomplishments. That's awesome. This was a, a comp competition where you played each opponent in five different racket sports. Huh. Two out of three games in each sport. And then if you won three sports, you'd go on to the next round. You see? And I won. I was, yeah. In any case, so it's a great accomplishment. And I, I love to play uh, sports my whole life. And, and so I, I love the idea of golf. I've been watching golf, oddly, even though I don't play it. And so it's been lots of fun. So in any case, the, the goal of the, the book came about by, by extracting, because we realized that if people really didn't want to learn the math at all, could we just extract the life lessons, the lessons about how to think without any of the distractions of mathematics? And that's where the five elements of effective thinking came about. And so it's, uh, it's been a great pleasure to, to deal with all kinds of groups from, from uh, from people in academia to business groups and dentists and every everybody else in talking about these ideas of how to think better. So I'm delighted that you have, have found good use of it yourself and then I'm, I'm hoping that we can spread some of the good word to everybody there. Michael, that's great. Um, you know, it's, so my degree is in economics and mathematics from Ohio Wesleyan University. So. Um, I remember my mom asked, she may not remember this, she's here tonight, 
But I remember her asking me one time, she's like, you're getting like low B's in math. Like you've never gotten low B's in math. And at this point I was taking, started taking discrete mathematics, applied statistics, um, and uh, linear algebra, which at that point I started realizing that it wasn't about memorizing formulas anymore. Um, and that's when things had to shift a lot for me and improved a lot. And if I could go back and do it again, I'd, I'd change the way that I studied for those classes because I think it would make it a lot easier on me. Um, speaking of which, in, in your classes, in the book you talk about um, a young lady you brought to the board and she struggled to work through the problem. But I find that really um, impactful and in this winter program that I run. This year I've got 30 people in it. I put people in what I call the hot seat and I make them stand out in front of everybody and hit the shot and be able to execute the skill and challenge them to be able to kind of pay attention and to what's going on and they struggle. But I, I don't ever let them just stay there and struggle the whole time. I kind of guide them a little bit and let them problem solve and let the group problem solve with them. And it's, it's a wonderful way of, of teaching. Um, and it seems like you use it a lot in your uh, style of academics. So if you'll share like why you think that's effective and it's, it's awesome. Right, absolutely. In fact, that, that strategy, first of all, getting students to realize that making mistakes and, and making them firmly is actually a very useful step toward becoming better at something. If you want to become a better golfer, you don't, you, you don't want to tentatively do something. You want to just go out all, all out and try something and then because then that will often exaggerate the error and then it becomes more obvious what the defect is in that method and then you can you can say aha the problem is i you know i moved my head too quick i didn't i didn't watch the ball and and then you can say okay now now we can focus on that feature and then and then redo it so so one of the features that uh, if, if people actually try things and make mistakes. You, you brought up, a, uh, I'll, I'll tell you this, this story that you, you mentioned in the book. I, I often ask students to come to the board and present things or ask them good questions in class. My method of volunteering is I just uh, point to somebody and say, Jack, you're going to tell me the answer to this next question. So that's, that's my method of volunteering. And sometimes the students, uh, you know, I try to create a fun atmosphere for class so they, they get, come to like it. But the point is that I, I, in this case, I was asking this student, uh, who I called Mary in the book, and, and I asked her over and over again questions that she couldn't get, she couldn't get, but she got them better and better and better, and eventually I got it. And at the end of it, she came up to me and she said, uh, I want to thank you, Professor Sharper, for this, even though it was uh, a sort of a dramatic uh, collection of errors and then corrections, errors and corrections and errors and corrections. But she said, oh, I want to thank you. And I said, really? Why? She said, well, uh, I, I've been trying to write a history paper for weeks, and I haven't been able to do it. I, haven't been, I didn't know what to do. And she said, now I know exactly what to do. And I said, really? Why? And she said, I'm going to go home and write a bad paper. And that's exactly right. Because by writing the bad paper and then looking, writing something down, and then looking, what's good about it? And then remember that. What's good about it? But also... Everything that's bad about it, find words that don't say exactly what you mean. Find reasoning that doesn't quite work. Or in the case of, of a physical skill, look at things that are defective. Also look at the things that are effective, that do work. 
And both of those are great instructors. So that if you have somebody who is 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 making a mistake in their golf swing, and I, you know, as I say, I'm a tennis player. So it'll be things like like the follow through of my of my swing. Am I actually keeping my eye on the ball at the point of impact? Things like that. Then those are defects that I can I can work on. But the things that work well are also things that I can work on. So thinking both about what is good and what is bad. Don't just throw away what's bad. Learn from it and say, okay, let's be honest about it, attentive to that, so that you can make that to be a, a positive step. So this is one of the strategies I love using. It sounds like you're doing exactly the same thing, which is great. Professor, do you think there's an art to putting somebody under under stress to kind of figure out how much potential they actually have? Um, like, I'll even use an example right here. I'm great at audio equipment, and as we were trying to start the podcast, I was having trouble with my audio. I've never seen this setting in my entire life. I dive on my computer, and somehow I figure it out. Do you think there's an art to kind of putting people under pressure to kind of figure out what their actual processes are that end up working? And how do you think we can uh, – a follow-up to that is how do you think we can implement those uh, pressure situations in our daily life by ourselves? Yeah, yeah. Oh, this is a wonderful question. I think often schooling and teaching <clears throat> protects students from struggle. And that's a mistake. That's a teaching error. And very often people will say, in fact, in fact it's sort of a, it's a joke that I think of. I often give kids a puzzle. If I, if I see a parent with a, a child, you know, like a 10-year-old, I'll give the 10-year-old a puzzle. And that, uh, that's, that's a little bit hard, but I know that the 10-year-old can figure out. And then the problem is I've got to tell the parent not to help because the parents always want to come in and instantly help because the, the, the kid can't get it instantly. And you want to go in there and help. And I, one of the things that I'm, I, I'm a very good teacher, by the way, I'm a very good teacher. <laughs> and one of the reasons I'm a good teacher is that I am willing to let people struggle. I'm perfectly happy to sit there while they are struggling and trying to figure things out on their own. Because to me, that process of figuring things out on your own and getting accustomed to doing that struggling is one of the one of the habits, the practices of mind that lead a person to become better and better and better at whatever they do. If a person is in the habit of just saying, if I don't know it, I'm dead in the water, I just don't do it, then they're limiting themselves. If you want to see how far a person can go, you want to say, you want to give some guidance, but most of the time you want to let them uh, figure things out on their own and let them struggle, let them try things, and then ask them, well, what, what worked, what didn't work? Are they actually attentive to what they actually did? I mean, could they actually describe what they actually did and were, were they accurate in their descriptions? Very often in physical things, like, like playing tennis or playing uh, or golf, do they think that they're watching the ball and keeping their head still when they're swinging, but actually are moving their head? You know, what is the reality? What's the relationship between what they perceive and what is real? Mm. And things like showing them pictures of themselves, videotapes or something of, of their actual reality can be a, an eye-opening experience for a, for a person. No, I, I think that's, that's dead on. And like, um, one of the things Again, I've been doing this for 11 years, teaching and coaching, and I find new ways to start junior programs and run junior programs. And 
introduced junior programs. I'm big on getting out front with, with parents and um, to the point of asking questions, which by the way, um, everybody that's here, I want you to come up with two questions before we get to the Q&A. Uh, Michael will know that's from a particular section in his book. So Pressure situation. Come up with two and uh, we'll be able to come up to the mic. But um, sidebar. Wait, 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 I wanted to say one other thing in answer to Jack's previous question. Oh, and by the way, I'm not hearing feedback now, so you could probably leave it on. In any case, um, uh, I wanted to say one of the things about the, the pressure situation he asked. I, I don't know whether it's necessary to have it be viewed as a pressure situation. To me, I set up a situation where people are comfortable making mistakes. I tell them mm -hmm. that is part of the, the joy of success is having a different relationship to either either pressure or to mistakes and if if you can get a person to feel that when they make a mistake it's not embarrassing it's not something to avoid it's something that is a step towards success to me every success is built on the ash heap of failed attempts that you learn from so to me i i often tell my students even a person might get it right, I'll tell another student who got it wrong to come to the board and present their wrong work so that we can all learn from that. So mm -hmm. I make it conspicuous that the mistake is also a step in the direction of success. Professor, I also think that um, as, a, as a teacher, you have to be very uh, intuitive as to what works for which student as well. Like the reason, the reason that I brought up the pressure situation is because I believe that I thrive under that kind of pressure. When I have to get it done, I do it. But if I'm in too comfortable of a situation, like you're saying, putting them in a comfortable situation, I don't necessarily think that I perform at my best, but I feel like that's also part of being a good teacher is figuring out what works for each student. Okay, sorry, I didn't give absolutely. you a chance to kind of rebuttal yeah. that, but I, I just was, uh, no, wanted to mention absolutely. that. No, absolutely. People are different. Uh, with the with the failure thing, I, I really push failure as a as a really big deal uh, for my students. They they look at failure as like this like be all end all thing. Like if I fail, I'm in trouble. Like I'm finishing a tournament and I, I finish you know with double bogey, double bogey in my last two holes uh, to to not shoot my personal best or not win the golf tournament or I let the team down. Whatever. It's like. What like it's all about learning from that. I, you know, since you've been watching golf more recently, uh, one of my favorite players is Dustin Johnson, and he got a lot of flack for a long time in the media of being in these major championships and losing. Like he was in the lead and he lose. He's in the lead and he loses year, years and years and years. And all of a sudden, he's number one player in the world a couple years later. I said like he's just gotten better at at learning how to make those mistakes like the more opportunities he has for that the better he gets at learning how to handle it and so you know not everybody's a tiger woods where it just seems like you win all the time and even tiger didn't win all the time you know he he's he lost tournaments he uh he made a lot of cuts but he didn't win every golf tournament he played and so there's always something to be learned so um with with that idea of failure kind of moving on to one other big thing i want to get to i'd love for you to share the story of the trumpet virtuoso and this idea of like, people think experts do these things that are like way high and above everybody else, but really down at their core, they're just so much better at the basic things. And that's why I'm excited about this next part of my book. The next book that comes out is really distilling the essential elements of what 
what is the game of golf from the strategic standpoint. And we've been looking at all of this surface stuff for years and we've gotten more and more and more data and you get lost in it because it's not at the core of what it is to play the game of golf. So share that story. I, I think it's a fantastic story uh, that we can all learn from. Right. Yeah, I, I'd love to. And so um, the story that Scott's referring to is, is a story about a friend of mine whose name is Tony Plogue, who's one of the world's greatest trumpet players. He plays in things like the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra, these elite uh, brass, uh, simply classical trumpet players. One of the greatest trumpet players in the world. Well, the University of Texas at Austin, where I, I teach, has a wonderful music department. And one day they, they invited Tony Plogue, because he's one of the best trumpet players in the world, to come and give a master class in trumpet performance to their students. And he lives in Germany, by the way. I knew him when he was a college student uh, in, in Southern California, but, but he now lives in, and has for decades lived in Germany. So they brought him over from Germany and he stayed at my house. Uh, and, and he said, well, I'm giving a master class in uh, trumpet. And I said, well, what's a master class? I, I didn't know what a master class was. We don't do master classes in mathematics. Although, frankly, it sounds like you maybe do master classes now in golf, which is great. <laughs> in any case, so he said, well, just come along and I'll show you what it is. So I went along with him to the music school and here's, here was the setting. It was sort of like the room you're in right there. It was a room they had in that case about 20 people in the audience who were professors of trumpet and other instruments and graduate students in trumpet performance. And these are great, great uh, students. I mean, they're the students who are going to be professional trumpet players. They're really great. So the, that what happened is that they uh, asked the first person to come down. So they said, uh, Jack, come on down. And, and Jack knew that he was going to be doing this. And he said, what are you going to play for us today? And Jack said, I'm going to play the third movement of uh, Tchaikovsky, something or you know, some fancy thing. And Jack proceeds to play some virtuosic passage. <laughs> you know, really wonderful trumpet player, because he's a graduate student who's one of the best uh, graduate students in trumpet. And then um, my friend Tony says, after a few minutes, he says, well, that's very good. Let me tell you how to make it even better. And they go back and forth, making it better. He says, if you hold the trumpet differently, if you explode the sound, if you make the phrasing, you know, the things you'd expect from the, the uh, uh, in a, a lesson. Well, after about 30 minutes, he's, he's about done with Jack, and he says, uh, Jack, how long do you spend practicing your exercises? And Jack says, well, I warm up for five or 10 minutes, and then I practice my repertoire. And he practices hours a day. I recorded the intro for your new book. So my friend Tony says, well, you might spend more time on the exercises. And uh, and and Jax is fine and he sits down and that's the that's the end of it. Then the next person comes in. Let's say let's say Anne. She comes up, does the same thing. She's a graduate student in trumpet performance, she's excellent. She plays virtuosic passages, they go back and forth. And at the end of that half hour, my friend Tony says, uh, how, how long do you spend practicing the exercises? He says, Oh, five, she says five or ten minutes. And then I practice my repertoire. And this happens to all four of the people who are treated. This was a master class consisted of giving these lessons, private lessons in public, to these four people. And at the end of each one, he said, you might spend more time on the exercises. So at the end of this, this two-hour deal, he said, are there any questions? Well, I'm the only one in the audience who knows nothing about the trumpet. But I always have questions. 
So I raised my hand, and he sort of looks at me and he says, Mike, you know, what are you doing? You ask me a question here. You're not a trumpet player. And I said, Tony, Tony, these people were great. Didn't you hear them? They were great. Why did you tell every one of them to spend more time on the exercise? Didn't you hear them? And he said, oh, well, let me show you. Let me show you. And so he asked Jack. He said, Jack, come back down. So Jack comes back down. And Jack and uh, my friend Tony says, would you play the exercise? They all know these exercises. And, and Jack says, sure. Well, we've only heard virtuosic stuff before this. You know, real fast and high notes and stuff. Now Jack comes and plays something that's trivial. Da, 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 da. You know, something it's basically like, like a scale or something. And my friend Tony says, oh, fine. And then, then Tony says, could I borrow your trumpet? And I'm thinking to myself, Tony, you're giving a trumpet lesson. Bring a trumpet. You know, it seems sort of basic. <laughs> <laughs> so, can I borrow your But so Jack says, okay, fine, you can borrow my But he does have his own mouthpiece, by the way, for those who believe in germs. <laughs> so my friend Tony has his own mouthpiece. So he puts in this mouthpiece. He hasn't played anything up to this point in the lesson. But he proceeds to play that simple exercise. But when Tony plays it, this international virtuoso, it is gorgeous. It is gorgeous. Every note rings like a bell. The phrasing is magical. You know, it, you would pay money to listen to him playing these scale-like exercises. It was completely clear that the difference between the actual international virtuoso and this really talented graduate student occurred at the level of the production of the notes, the sounds. It was at the very basics. Not not just at the how to do the uh, you know the virtuosic passages, but at the basic production sound. And Tony explained it. He said, look, if you get to be able to practice so that you can produce sound very efficiently, if you can control that sound with great nuance, then when you do the most advanced passages, you can bring that additional skill, that strength, that nuance to the production of these most difficult passages. And, and so I wanted to say two things about this. One is, he's not saying, and in the case of teaching golf or tennis, it's not that you only work on the simplest mm. things until you get them to be great, because you can't do that. You can't become great at very simple things without going forward beyond what you can do well and then return to the basics. And when you return to the basics, you, be, you see them in a different light. You actually learn them differently because the most advanced work has taught you what is important. And so, so I would say when you're, you know, if I were teaching golf or as I teach mathematics or as I teach um, uh, uh, if I think about learning tennis. It's a question of going forward to the most advanced kinds of things that you do, the most advanced skills or knowledge, and then returning to the fundamentals, and then going to the most advanced ones again, returning to the fundamentals, and most advanced ones, so that it's a, an oscillating thing. And that when you return to the fundamentals, you see them in a different light from what you've seen before as it allows you to advance the most advanced work that you do. Does that I, resonate? I, I think that's incredible, which 
I think that's incredible. And that's a point um, that I kind of want to stop this first podcast on and let's get to the Q&A. Um, Jack's got to make a little edit to the to the audio. The irony of like this idea of making mistakes, like Jack doesn't make them very often, but uh, especially when it comes to audio. But it's kind of cool to see that happen. The irony of it happening in this in this podcast is actually pretty cool. So, um, Michael, thank you. Uh, audience, have your questions ready. We're gonna have to come up to the mic, and I'm actually gonna have him sit in my seat so they can look at you, um, so you know who you're talking to. So, with that, Michael, thank you. As always, make sure to follow Scott on Instagram. Uh, that's at shassigolf, two S's, two E's. And Michael, is there anything that you would like to plug while we're on right here on the podcast? Well, I, 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 I certainly uh, would, would like people to read this book. I think it's a value, The Five Elements of Effective Thinking. Ed Berger is a good friend of mine. He and I wrote this, this book. One thing, by the way, you should point out is it's extremely short. It's extremely short. It has it has uh, uh, the audible version is three hours and nine minutes for the audible version, and also if you like other languages, it's been translated into seventeen foreign languages. So if you want to read so it in cool. other, other <laughs> languages, feel free. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, but I think you'll find it, it, it enjoyable and 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 value, hopefully valuable to you as as Scott shared. So as always, uh, that book is The Five Elements of Effective Thinking. Uh, Michael, thanks so much. We're going to turn it around in about two minutes with you for the episode number two. And for those listening to you on the audio, thanks so much for listening. um, And we'll see you on the next one. Peace. Thanks, y'all, for listening to this episode of the Champions Playbook. As always, you can find us anywhere that you guys are. So uh, make sure to check out Scott on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of the above. His Instagram is at Golf. That's two S's and two E's. So make sure to go and check out everything that he's got going on over on his Instagram page. Uh, as well as make sure you follow Franklin Bridge. Uh, Franklin Bridge puts out some great things as well, and we want to make sure that we support them because they support us. So as always... Feel free to come by the back porch of the Persimmon Pub at 7 p.m. on Wednesdays to come and listen to us talk golf. So book a late afternoon round of golf, and then afterwards, come on inside, get some food, some drinks. Uh, We got some specials going on. We had some $5 flatbread pizzas. We had some amazing chicken tacos, as well as drink specials going on all night long. So make sure to support the Persimmon Pub as well when you come out. We would love to see you guys. We do one episode and then a live Q&A and then another episode. So from 7 to 9 on Wednesdays, we hope to see you soon, and we'll see you on the next one. Peace.